Greetings to the brightest audience in the country and welcome to the Dominic Enyart Show. A little bit more of a somber show today. As many of you, I'm sure, are aware, C.S. Lewis has had a major impact on my life. He is one of the great Christian men of history whose writings and teachings have brought most likely millions to Christ. And he was an intellectual giant of his day. He was a fellow and tutor in English literature at Oxford University in 1945 when he was unanimously elected to the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. And that was a position he held until his retirement. Not a lot of people know this, but C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, they were actually in a bit of an author's club together, Tolkien and Lewis and two other authors. And Tolkien, actually, he brought Lewis to the Lord. Tolkien led Lewis to the Lord. And when they would write together, Lewis, he would encourage Tolkien, hey, Tolkien, you need to have a lot of religious symbolism in your story. In Lord of the Rings, you should put some religious symbolism in it. And Tolkien said, no, no, no. I just want my, I want my story to just be a story. And Tolkien did not give in. So a little bit of interesting history there. Now, on April 23rd, 1956, Lewis married Joy Davidman. And Joy, she was in the hospital when they were married. Joy had cancer when they became married. And there was a possibility of an unexpected remission, but it was assumed that she would die shortly thereafter in their marriage. On Lewis' part, this was an extraordinary witness of love, courage, and sacrifice. And they ended up having some good years of reprieve, But four years later, Joy Lewis died on July 13th, 1960. The next year, in late September, Lewis published a book titled A Grief Observed. And A Grief Observed was written under a pseudonym N.W. Clerk. In the book, rather than referring to his wife by name, he referred to her as H, the letter H. And today I'm going to give my thoughts on the book. And it should be noted, I read this after the passing of my father and predecessor, Bob Enyart, who died in September of last year. When I read A Grief Observed, I will note it was not because my father had died and I was looking for a book on the subject of grief. I actually had this book in my reading list for quite some time, and I coincidentally worked my way up to it after my father's passing. Nonetheless, it was an interesting greed comparing my grief to his own, and I can't claim to understand the grief of losing a wife or a spouse. As Moses wrote, the two shall become one flesh, and that is why in the foreword of the book, Madeline Leingle described losing the death of a spouse as an amputation. And the pain of losing a loved one can be so great that you yourself may die of a broken heart. The American Heart Association refers to this as broken heart syndrome, and it's not to be taken lightly, and it is very real. And although I can't claim to understand how severe the grief of losing a spouse is, 
I did read this in my worst moments comparing the grief of the loss of my father to Lewis, his grief. And today I'd like to offer my commentary. Now, I'm not one to get sappy on air, and so I hope you don't find this too depressing. And it's my goal that with this show, I might be able to help those who are struggling with grief in their own life one way or the other. And I've waited intentionally to do this show. So hopefully I've waited long enough to do this without getting at at least not too sappy here. As I said, Lewis has moved me a tremendous amount. He's helped my walk with the Lord. And if you listen to this show often, you'll know that I quote him frequently with a sense of admiration. That said, I'm going to say something about Lewis' book here that wouldn't be typical for me to say about any other Lewis writing. Before I do so, though, I would like to give a synopsis of the book. A Grief Observed is a book that doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't give any stereotypical proverbs of comfort. And overall, it's a very dark and sad read, fitting for a book written about grief. It opens with Lewis talking about very relatable pains of losing a loved one and then asking a harsh question. Meanwhile, where is God? Lewis talks about how when you go to the Lord, when you have very few needs, you will typically be met with open arms. And then this is a direct quote from the book, quote, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. Lewis then says that he is in no danger of ceasing to believe in God, but rather he is in danger of believing horrible things about God. He began to question where his late wife was, and while years prior with the death of a friend, he was quite sure that his friend was in heaven, but with the loss of his wife, he no longer had that certainty. He touches on something that I relate to, and I won't use Lewis' words here, but just my own, that after the death of a loved one, people very often say, it's what so-and-so would have liked. And it's often well-intentioned, but I've noticed that usually at best, it's just empty words. And at worst, it's a twisted tool to get what someone wants. With the death of my father, I'd hear people I didn't even know say things like, you know, oh, he would have liked things this way or that way or the other way. And being his son, I know that he so would not have cared, not even one iota about whatever it is that they were talking about. Yet people say it and rather than correct it, you you know, you just let it go because the laziness of grief is overwhelming. And if you know me and you're listening to the show and you've said something along those lines, I'm not saying this to try and guilt trip you. I tried to be weary of this myself. I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, you know, oh, my dad would have liked things this way or that way and use that to, uh, as a means to an end. But saying that at its best, it, it's typically just a mindless, empty string of words. And at, at its worst, I've seen people say that to get their own way. You know, this is what Bob would have wanted, followed by some absurd proposition. And those people I, I quickly cut out of my life. Returning, though, to the book, a little later on, Lewis shows little patience with those who try to make less of death. He describes people as saying there is no death or death doesn't matter. 
which in my own intuition, I doubt anyone said that to him. If you are a Christian and you've lost someone you loved, I imagine a typical assurance you'll hear is that you will see your loved one again. And when in grief, it's easy to take what people say in the worst light possible and to not give anyone the benefit of the doubt. But it seems as if no one would ever say, at least not in good faith, death does not matter to someone who's just lost a loved one or anything along those lines saying, you know, death is not real because to that person who's in the thick of it, death is the most real thing that there is. And there is nothing more real than death itself. Pain. You get these, all these atheists who say nothing is real and that we're all in an illusion and this is just a simulation. And it's like, yeah, until you feel pain and nothing is more real than pain because, you know, you can be apathetic towards everything in life, but then the second you feel pain, boom, man, you know, everything is real. The pain is real. It is the most real thing. And you will fight hard to get away from that pain. Even an atheist who claims that this is all an illusion. There is an Indian proverb about suicide, which goes something along these lines. You want to die? Then throw yourself into the sea and you'll see yourself fighting to survive. You do not want to kill yourself. Rather, you want to kill something inside of you. It's interesting, right? Regardless of our bizarre philosophies, we act as if everything is real because everything is real. And that's something everyone inherently knows is true. So did people actually tell Lewis there is no death? Well, I don't think so. I think a more likely explanation is that people said something along the lines of C.S. Lewis, you know, you'll see her again regardless of this death, which Lewis wasn't sure about. And he took that as there is no death. Of course, I was not there with Lewis, and I I do know people in my grief, they have told me some pretty bizarre things, but nothing quite like that. And I mean, I've had people tell me things in bad faith specifically meant to insult me or my family or my father or even God himself, yet those things, they can all be discounted. I'm talking about people who say things in good faith, trying to be encouraging, Regardless, of course, I was not there, so anything I say about Lewis should be taken with a massive grain of salt. Lewis, in the book, he talked about married life and what it's like going from being married to being unmarried, and it seems that he somewhat blames God for his pain. Reading now from the book, Oh God, God, why did you take such trouble to force this creature out of its shell if it is now doomed to crawl back, to be sucked back into it? He discusses the fear of forgetting what his late wife is like, and he touches on a sad reality that regardless of how good our memories are, we will slowly begin to forget what someone is like. And I'm sure that for me, losing my father over the years, this will be true, which is terrifying. Of course, I have the blessing of this radio show I inherited from him. From three decades of archives, his teachings, his notes are all recorded for me to go back and listen to and read and to watch. And that is a blessing most will never have, for which I am extremely grateful. 
but I already find myself forgetting things about him. And this is why Lewis strongly dislikes the claim that his wife will live on forever in his memory, because that is exactly the thing that she will not do. And your memory, you can't help but selecting and grouping some memories and not others and putting some on a pedestal in some regards. And you begin to create a false image of someone. And then you remember the false image of them rather than the actual person. It's like there's that meme that went viral way back when the guy was going through a breakup with a girl and he said, you know, oh man, I'm, I'm really going to miss my original misconceptions about you. And it's kind of like that, right? You paint a picture of someone and over time, the picture, it deteriorates and you're left with a slowly fading, inaccurate picture. There's a famous scene from a movie, which I'm not going to name because the movie is rather despicable and evil, but there was a nugget of brilliance in it. The main character had a death in his family years ago before the movie takes place, and he is comforting a friend who just had a family member die. And the main character says, I've got the transcript here, I'll read. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The bad news is you're never going to be the same again. You're never going to be whole, not ever again. You lost your daughter and nothing is ever going to replace that. Now, the good news is as soon as you let yourself accept that and you let yourself suffer, you'll allow yourself to visit her in your mind. You will remember all the love she gave and all the joy she knew. The point is, you can't steer from the pain. If you do, you will rob yourself. You will rob yourself of every memory of her. And then he encourages his friend to go through the pain and to do the best possible job of retaining that memory, which is really brilliant because it's easy to rob yourself of those memories and it's easy to forget about them. And that's partially what Lewis was touching on here. Then, as I mentioned earlier, he does not feel confident about her eternal security and where she is when he says, quote, you never know how much you really believe about anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. He claims there is no such thing as confidence. And then he asks if she experiences time in the same way that we do. And luckily, if you've been listening to Bob Inyart Live, Theology Thursday, and the Dominic Inyart Show, you'll know the answer is a resounding yes. For in Revelation 6.10, we see the fallen saints are waiting in time. It reads, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are in heaven, and they are waiting. Two chapters later, it reads, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Once my dad was teaching about this concept of time in heaven, and someone interrupted the Bible study and asked, but what is half an hour in heaven? And one of the elders of the church, he shouted out, 30 minutes. <laughs> and so, yes, there is time in heaven. And so when you ask, oh, I wonder what my late uncle or my late grandfather or whoever, I wonder what they're up to right now. I wonder what they're doing right now in heaven. That is a perfectly valid question. But Lewis doesn't get too much into that. 
What he does say is that he misses her. And then he says something a little concerning. He says that he cannot be comforted by religion. People will tell him that he will get to see her again. And Lewis has a rather bitter attitude towards those people. His response is primarily that he wishes he could have her back in the here and now on earth and not in heaven. And he quotes Revelation 21.4, which says that in heaven, quote, the former things have passed away. And it's the former things that Lewis longs for. He longs for marriage, which will not be in heaven. And so comforting him with religion seemed to be ineffective. He said, talk to me about the truth of religion, and I will listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I will listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect you do not understand. If you've spent a considerable amount of time in the Psalms, you may have noticed David seems to be highly inconsistent, bipolar, if you will. One Psalm is the greatness and the riches and praises of Christ, and the next is him crying out in desperation to a God who has seemingly abandoned him. A grief observed seems to be a giant list of the Psalms of despair without often reverting back to the Psalms of praise. However, it does seem that Lewis slowly came back around when he said later, I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? Lewis also talks a lot about marriage and what marriage is and the discomfort of no longer being married, and he offers a lot of unique insights. As I said, Lewis here does not pull any punches, nor does he offer any cheap comforts. And so that is my synopsis. And now for some additional thoughts, I'm going to say something rather harsh about this book, which may be a little bit odd for me as I'm something of a C.S. Lewis fan. All in all, A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis is a bad book. I don't mean that it's not well articulated, nor is it poorly written, or even is it poorly reasoned. And before I explain why I say this is a bad book, I would like to note three things. One, as I was reading this book, it struck me that while he was writing it, it did not seem like he was writing it that it might be published. It seemed more that he was writing it as a journal of sorts to help express and deal with his own thoughts. And considering this was published under a pseudonym, it seemed that he didn't necessarily think of this as one of his best works. And my intuition tells me that he decided to publish this well after having finished it. The number two, as I said in the beginning, I do not know what it is like to lose a spouse, nor do I know the pain that accompanies that. The number three, as this was written by a Christian, of course, we should give him grace. And not just was he a Christian, but he was a great intellectual, brilliant Christian and because of that, he is owed grace upon grace upon grace. And so while I am going to criticize this book, I'm going to do so carefully as I think that Lewis has earned a lot of grace in our eyes. So why is it that I say this book is a bad book? I found Lewis' response to tragedy in his life rather pathetic, and I don't say that without much consideration. 
of course, everyone who, who deals with grief deals with it differently, and there is no correct way of dealing with grief. However, there are, it seems, incorrect ways of dealing with grief, and I believe Lewis put those on full display here. And before you say that I'm being too critical of this great man, I'd like to read you a quote. Lewis himself in the book asks, why do I make room in my mind for such filth and nonsense? And that's a good question. There is an attitude among some Christian circles, even today, many Christians will say something along the lines of, it's okay to be angry at God. He can take it. And we don't need to look very far away to find that attitude. In the foreword of this book, Madeline Leingle writes, I am grateful, too, to Lewis for having the courage to yell, to doubt, to kick at God with angry violence. This is a part of healthy grief not often encouraged. Unfortunately, even for a man like C.S. Lewis in a time of great trouble, that is evil. That line, you'll hear it in Christian circles all the time, and it just kills me. It's okay to be angry at God. He can take it. That kills me. The stupidity that radiates from that sentence is palpable. So what's the logic? That anything that God can handle is okay? Well, newsflash people, God can handle sending you to hell for your sin. God can handle that. And it grieves God, tremendously so, but he can handle it. So what? That makes it okay? If you've ever read the book of Jonah, it makes note that being angry at the Lord is a pretty bad thing. And I'm here to tell you that you will look pretty stupid for being angry. You know, having self-control and having faith and trusting in God, those things are virtuous. They are. But they're even more virtuous when the going gets tough. When life gets hard, that is exactly when it is most important to trust in God, to have self-control, and to have faith. To have patience when everything is happening quickly is not virtuous. To show kindness when you are weak and incapable of anything else is not virtuous. Virtue comes with adversity or challenge. And getting angry at God when things go poorly, that is not courageous, as Lettingel writes. On the contrary, it's stupid. Jesus gave everything for us on the cross, and he made such a significant sacrifice, he did everything for us. What more could you ask of him? He laid down his life for us, and as we know, there is no greater act of love than to lay down your life for another. Is there a single thing he could have done to warrant anger? What thing has the Lord done to earn our wrath? What is the justification for being angry at God? What action did he take? When was that? I'm going to need a timestamp. I'm going to need specifics. If you are a Christian who is saying it's okay to be angry at God and yell at him and kick out at him with violence, you are going to need to give me a really clear example of something wrong that God has done. As the kids would say, I'm going to need the receipts on that one. Is there righteous anger? Yeah, of course there is. And it is only to be directed at the unrighteous. So you as a Christian, you are telling me that God is unrighteous? You're telling me that he is not perfect? Of course, he is perfect. Jesus commands us, therefore, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And Lewis here 
he does show some level of anger towards God, and that is very saddening. I take issue with a few specific points he makes, and I'll note that with a few of these, Lewis himself refutes his own claims even in this very book and elsewhere in his other writings. To start, I'll quote that line again. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And I don't plan on taking too much time here on this. Mainly, I'd like for Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount to respond to Lewis. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Later, when he's talking about how even in heaven he will miss marriage, he quotes Revelation 21 verse 4, which says that in heaven the former things have passed away. Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come to me talking about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect you don't understand. I noticed here that Lewis did not quote the entire verse. It seemed rather immature and foolish of him not to, especially in the context of comfort and consolation, and I will do so here. Revelation 21, verse 4, starting from the top. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The comfort of the scriptures is unrivaled. When I was maybe, I don't know, 14, I brought this idea up to my dad and I, I asked, I told him, you know, it seems sad that, you know, we have marriage now, but we won't have marriage in heaven and that the former things will have passed away. That was the idea I was getting at. And his answer was brilliant as always. Cannot the God who created marriage, the designer and originator of the universe, cannot he design something as beautiful as marriage in heaven, albeit different? If it is intimacy we desire, cannot the creator of intimacy itself satisfy that desire? Perhaps with something even greater? To read a quote from Lewis himself that he wrote in Mere Christianity, I actually read this quote on my last show Wednesday last week. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Our desires will be met in heaven and our needs will be fulfilled. That is a great comfort. Revelation 21.4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So, for those reasons, I think this book is a bad book, and I don't think Lewis handled his grief as well as he could have. As I was going through this book, I found myself saying time and time again, come on, you know better, you know better than this. I've seen your own arguments against the very things you are saying right here in your own writings, Lewis. And so it was sad to read this. 
Now, if you are going through grief yourself and you're listening to this show, the Dominic in your show, I would like to encourage you. Jesus is there for you. And all you need do is knock. You can use this time to strengthen your faith and it need not hinder your faith. If you approach him with a spirit of humility, a spirit of servitude and a desire to honor and glorify him. That said, I did enjoy reading A Grief Observed. It was raw, it was honest, and it was painful. And that is something that was refreshing. Lewis, as always, he did have many great insights in this book, and there are many gems to be found here, diamonds in the rough, and they are diamonds, brilliant points. However, the diamonds are in the rough. They are in the rough. And if you are looking for a guide to navigate grief, this is not where you want to go. I would recommend for that the Psalms, personally. I will say it's a short read and it's worth your time, even if nothing else, just from a historical perspective. It's good to to know what Lewis was going through, but just be cautious as you approach it. I am going to close the show now, but before I do so, I would like to express one thing I've noticed going through grief personally. The pain of loss is not one that humanity is supposed to go through. God does not desire for any of us to have to go through anything like this. This is certainly a result of the fall, which hurt God himself as well as mankind. And while God can take evil and sin and pain and death, and he can use it for good and for healing and for reconciliation, that does not mean he wanted you to go through this. That said, God, he created humanity, and he created us as resilient creatures, and we're not ones to give up easily. Going through grief has helped me to realize just how brilliant of a designer he is. The human body, even, processing grief is an interesting thing crying. And now this might be a little gross, and I'm going to try to avoid getting sappy with it, but Jesus wept, right? When something horrible happens to someone you love, you cry. And crying, it takes a remarkable amount of energy out of you. Have you ever noticed that, right? Like there's that saying, cry yourself to sleep. A lot of people, they cry and then they fall asleep. It takes a lot out of you. And so when something terrible happens, you cry. And all these hormones and chemicals, they're being released. And wow, you are sad. And it's exhausting. And eventually, you know what? Your tear ducts, they run dry. You feel so sad. You almost wish that you could cry more because of how sad you are. But your tear ducts are empty and your body doesn't have any more of those sad chemicals to release. Even as you're crying, and this is gross, so I apologize, but even as you're crying, your nose, it fills up with snot and you need to take a break from your crying to blow your nose and so you can keep crying. But eventually what happens is you cry so much that you have to stop. You cry and you cry and you cry and eventually you have to stop. And then at some point, you know, you fall asleep and then you're not awake for eight hours and you get some level of peace and you might have a bad nightmare for half an hour, but still that's seven and a half hours of emotional recovery. And you wake up the next day and well, Hey, you, you cry and you cry again, and then you get tired and you fall asleep again. And the cycle repeats. 
But with each time you go through that cycle, the amount of time between tiers, it slowly increases and increases. And the amount that you cry slowly becomes less and less over time. And eventually you get to the point where it's once in a blue moon that you cry and then eventually not at all. Our physical bodies do not have that energy to put out that high level of emotion for such an extended period of time. And I have often wondered if that's part of the reason we are body, soul, and spirit, because the body puts a limitation on our sadness. Think about that. The body puts a limitation on our sadness. And if our bodies didn't hold us back, perhaps we might just spiral into eternal sadness. Humanity, and perhaps angels, are the only part of God's creation which can experience grief and sadness to such an intense degree. And we, it seems, were the only ones built with the incredible ability to recover from grief. Even at our worst, God's handiwork is clearly seen. His glory as a designer is unparalleled, and his presence is with us always. May the Lord bless you, and may he make his face to shine upon you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. A reminder from our Lord Christ Jesus. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Godspeed.